feel overwhelmed when you read research papers? Think research is being conducted in labs far, far away? Well, tune into the Alma Mac Thursdays from 12 to 12.30 p.m. where we interview McMaster graduate students about their research. You learn about important research that's happening right on campus. Learn about what the guests did before research, how they got involved in academia, and what kind of impact their research can have on you. The Alamac is covering it all from Thursday 12 to 12.30 p.m. on 93.3 CFMU, redefining radio in your community. Hello and welcome to the Almamac. I'm your host, Adam, and I'm recording this on the traditional territory shared between the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe nations, which was acknowledged in the Dish with One Spoon wampum belt. And I have a pre-recorded interview with Ben Pierce. It's a long one. It's going to go tape to tape. So here it comes. <laughs> My name is Ben Pierce, and I am a PhD candidate in the Physics and Astronomy Department at McMaster University and also part of the collaborative graduate program in astrobiology. So there's a small handful of us who are from various departments and we, we collaborate on things, uh, research things such as the origins of life and search for life beyond Earth, although none of us have really actually done that. That takes, <laughs> that, that takes some telescope time. Uh, and I guess my story is, yeah, is a little bit winding uh, I, I came out of high school not really having a good idea for uh, what I wanted to do. I kind of, my, my, I think it was my mom who said, like, you'd make a good engineer. And I was like, okay, I mean, I trust you. <laughs> uh, I, you seem to know me pretty well, so maybe I'll try that. That seems like a pretty common bucket for people to get thrown into. I'm sure you were yeah. pretty good at maths and exactly. sciences. Yeah, you were yeah. probably good at most of the stuff you Good tried, at math and science. Oh, engineer. You yeah. know. And I think, I mean, I think she also wanted me to make money, which is fair, right? I mean, who yeah. doesn't want money? Actually, I remember uh, one of the first days of engineering, they, they put up a slide which shows your, your starting income coming out of your fourth year, your fifth year. And I was like, wow, like... Okay, I see. <laughs> you actually make some really good coin. <laughs> uh, so I, I I did that degree and I went to software engineering as my specialization, and it was it was okay. I I did well enough to pass. Uh, I wasn't super passionate about software engineering. I was I, at no point actually in that degree was I really kind of latched on to what I was doing. I was kind of just just doing enough to get through. <laughs> And then after I graduated, inevitably went into the industry, I kind of felt the same way I felt while I was doing that degree. I just, I could do it, I could code, um, but I never really had a connection with what I was coding. I worked for uh, an oil company and uh, I made oil software and it just, I didn't, I had no passion for oil. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I'm kind of an environmentalist, so I had this conflicting uh, nature between what I was doing and, and my beliefs so inevitably I just I just couldn't take it anymore regardless of the nice salary that comes along even at that uh, entry level and I decided to to go travel for a year and just I don't know hope that I could kind of figure something out and I think that's that's something that's I don't know I, I kind of made fun of a little bit you go on like a, a journey of self-discovery <laughs> but that kind of happened for me, so... <laughs> Honestly, I think there's a lot of merit to, you know, taking a year between, say, like an undergrad and a master's, or a master's and a PhD, yeah. like just sort of, you know, 
reground yourself and yeah, figure exactly. out what's next. A lot of people just throw themselves into it, and I don't know if that's the best. Yeah, yeah, you can get get caught up in the same uh, uh, same routines, and you're not really thinking about what you want. At least I wasn't. But as soon as I got thrown way out of my uh, my comfort zone in a country where I didn't speak the language, and I was kind of on my own for the first time. Uh, I really started to learn about myself and uh, what I liked. Mm -hmm. uh, I made a lot of friends, a lot of people from around the world who were who were my age and were doing the same thing. And I'd meet them at the hostel and I'd be like, oh, you just moved to Berlin? I just moved to Berlin. I was going to say, which... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Berlin, I mean, it's just such a great place for young people. Like, it's, mm -hmm. it's uh, full of life and art and partying and it's just uh, it's a super open place too you can really do anything there and it's actually got a really big uh, technology uprising um, uh, as a joke they say uh, they say Berlin is Silicon Ali <laughs> um, so it's there's a lot going on there for that and I actually inevitably ended up working at a, a tech firm not because I wanted to, but because I wanted to stay in Berlin. Okay. And I couldn't find a job working as, a, say, a bartender or a server because I didn't have enough German. In any case, uh, I found that I, I would bring up a lot of conversations about space and astronomy during this trip for no particular reason, but, but that I just was really kind of fascinated about it. I had time to myself to just think, and I found my, my mind just kept wandering upwards. So I thought, okay, this is really cool. And the first, the first problem really enthralled me was, uh, was the tidal locking of the moon to the Earth. Ah, right. So you always see the same face? You always see the same face, situation. yeah. Someone, one of my roommates uh, in Germany told me this, and I, was, I could not let it go. I was like, why? Well, it doesn't make any sense at all. Why would, that, why would it always be facing us? That seems so bizarre. And I know we, like, we, we guessed at some reasons. We're like, oh, maybe the moon is... It's kind of like, you know, like got a big, un uneven side and a, and a more uniform side, and you know that kind of more gravity or something pulls that. Mm -hmm. But uh, as I as I dug more and more into the problem, it's actually a very complicated problem, and required me to to pick up some uh, some books on mechanics and and uh, forces, torques, rotational forces. And, uh, and I just started picking up book after book and learning more and more and I was just really enjoying it because I had this problem that was that I could I could really sink my teeth into something that I was interested in and I just chose to go as far as I could down the rabbit hole to learn about it so yeah that's a pretty cool one it's yeah one of those things where if you don't know the answer to it you might just think that's some like crazy coincidence yeah exactly yeah so I, I couldn't accept that and I mean yeah that's that was the fun part of it that's cool so, so what kind of turned your eyes towards astronomy type things? Were you like reading popular science articles or like, it do, was, do you remember a specific moment? There was I remember these conversations, like this one I had with my roommate about the, about the tidal locking. And I remember talking with a lot of my friends in the hostel about, you know, whether we were alone in the universe uh, or if there was, you know, life elsewhere, be it microbial or intelligent or mm -hmm. something else. Is there a life in the solar system, life on Mars, maybe? And I can't say that, that, it, was, uh, that it was one article or something. It was probably people, actually. Yeah. 
the people that I chose to talk to and the things that I chose to talk to them about, you know, as soon as we start pick, as soon as we start on the topic of space, then we were, we were staying there, you know? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, you know, after enough of those conversations, enough time, I, I, and enough studying, I really thought to myself, well, you know what, maybe I should just go back to school and study this thing that I seem to be so enthralled with. That seems like a pretty safe, a safe bet. So I did that. I went back to UBC for an undergrad in astronomy, and it was so different from my first degree, uh, not just because I was a mature student and knew how to study and stuff like that, but because I, because of the content, all the content in my courses, I would be super interested in learning about, and would would always read the textbook, um, and it, none of it would, really seemed like a lot of work, although, you know, being an undergrad, there's always... They're always overworking you, so yeah, <laughs> I can't yeah. claim that I that I wasn't stressed by that at all, um, just as much as any other undergrad. Yeah, certainly coming back as a mature student, like you don't have to learn how to you know do laundry or something. You're yeah, you're a human being. Yeah, you're not like yeah. A... <laughs> you got life under control. You just have to worry about about going to cl- getting to class and and listening. Yeah. And especially if you're passionate about the stuff you're doing now. Yeah, that's gonna feel a lot more. A lot more better than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that was kind of the beginning of this next trajectory of my life, which I'm still on now. Yeah. Um, so, so you went astronomy-ish. Mm-hmm. You're more complicated than that, though. You mentioned the Origins of Life Institute. Right. And so I talked to Sean on the show uh, a couple weeks back. Yeah. And she was, you know, she's kind of looking at what lipid membranes how that kind of works, that whole idea. You can't have life without, you know, something that contains the juicy bits. Yeah, exactly. Um, But I feel like you do different stuff. Yes, Is that fair to say? That is fair to say. (laughs) I do do different stuff, uh, but I also do a little bit of the same stuff. Me and Sean actually right now are running an experiment in the Planet Simulator, which is based on both of our research. So this is is actually in the... uh, uh, In the... uh, essence of the Origins Institute's uh, collaborative graduate program, which is supposed to be collaborative. Uh, so we're actually collaborating, which is good, because um, we knew we were supposed to, and we actually finally got together and, and did it. Uh, but my research has been more on the origin of the building blocks of life, uh, which, which also include the building blocks of, uh, of cell membranes, uh, a little bit at least. And I focused a lot in the past on meteorites because uh, a certain type of meteorite, the carbonaceous chondrite, seems to be a very rich source of various biomolecules, the ones that make up proteins, amino acids, the ones that make up RNA and DNA, the nucleobases, and the ones that make up cell membranes, the fatty acids. It has all of them. Right, uh, okay. So, I mean, you, you, you analyze a meteorite and you wonder, like, like, why are all these biomolecules in here? I mean, this came from space um, in a very inert, weird, big rocky object that that didn't, you know, as far as we know, have life on it, or or there's no reason to to believe that life could have ever formed. It has all these biomolecules that can just be made from basic chemistry, and uh, and then you begin to wonder, well. Were these meteorites necessary to the story of the origin of life? You know, were these uh, meteorites, did they deliver all the necessary biomolecules to some favorable environment, say a pond on the early Earth, uh, and then that pond undergoing wetting and drying, seasonal wetting and drying, 
or, or maybe daily wetting and drying, uh, could then um, change the, those molecules so they can, and, and, and make them more complex so that they can start to resemble something that we understand as living. So that's, that's been a long question in my research. Um, at first we, we kind of took that meteorite problem as far as we could and it turns out that it, it can be a good source uh, of, of the building blocks of life, but there are some issues in that you're only getting one kind of feedstock of these molecules. Like it's very improbable that two meteorites will fall in the same pond, for instance, on different days. Uh, there's just so much land mass on the earth and although there was a lot of these things, um, it's, it's really, it's, it's not raining down daily in the same location. Um, so the problem with this is you wonder, well, can you really have a system like a pond that can uh, grow in complexity with only one single feedstock? And we're not so sure. Um, if that's indeed how it happens, then we, we're really going to have to uh, cross off a few other possibilities before we would believe that. Right. And, and that's where my research is going now is one of those other possibilities of these feedstock biomolecules is the atmosphere itself. Okay, yeah. so I haven't actually heard of that aspect of your research before. So we kind of, in previous episodes, we kind of dug into the idea of um, yeah, feedstock coming from a, a celestial body of some mm -hmm. sort, delivering definitely not life, but the things that you need to yeah, yeah, you exactly, know, yeah. put it all together. But how would the, how would the atmosphere get involved in this? Yes, so the, the atmosphere 3.7 or 4 billion years ago would have looked a lot differently than it does now. Uh, the most obvious things are, would have been no oxygen, and oxygen is very good at destroying things. You know, you hear of oxidation as being a bad thing. Well, oxygen uh, likes to attach to a lot of molecules and, and, um, and, and make, make molecules that uh, are not lifelike. You gotta get those antioxidant superfoods. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what the aliens did. They injected antioxidants in the atmosphere. <laughs> uh, so there would have been a lot of CO2 because you would have gotten your atmosphere mostly from volcanic outgassing. So there'd been a lot of CO2. The nitrogen uh, would have also been there. It's just a, an inert gas, but it would have been there from the uh, from the from the get go. You'd also get a lot of methane. So we have a little bit of methane in the atmosphere about. Uh, about two, what is it, two, two parts per million? Yeah, and it would have been maybe a hundred times that. Because okay. um, there would have been a lot more volcanoes, there would have been a lot, a lot more energy, a lot more heat just after the formation of the planet. So would this be very similar to like a Venus or a Mercury or something like that? Like, is there another planet in the solar system that would be similar to a proto-life? Yes, actually. Uh, and this also brings me to my current research, is, uh, is Titan, Saturn's moon, uh, has a very, very similar composition um, to the early Earth, except that uh, there, there's no CO2, not really a lot of CO2 on, on Titan. But it has the high methane, high nitrogen, and, uh, and hydrogen, molecular hydrogen content. Okay. Um, right now in my research, we're actually in a validation phase where we're, we're simulating Titan's atmosphere before we get to the early Earth because there's all this rich data from when Cassini went and visited Titan right, and right. did readings. So it's, okay. it's a necessary step so that we, when we get to modeling the early Earth, we can really believe our results a little bit more. Yeah. Okay, so you have this atmosphere. It 
is very different. It's mm -hmm. very greenhouse gassy, etc. Yeah. But what else do these these molecules do that they're in the atmosphere? Right. Are they going to react with? Uh, yes. Okay. So the so the key important uh, molecule is hydrogen cyanide. Oh. Um, okay. When things like methane and nitrogen uh, dissociate from thing from ultraviolet radiation in the atmosphere, they break up and then their fragments come together to form hydrogen cyanide. And hydrogen cyanide is uh, a precursor molecule to nucleobases, the building blocks of RNA and DNA, as well as amino acids, the building blocks of protein. So this one molecule, hydrogen cyanide, um, could be responsible for most of the biomolecules, pretty much everything except for the cell membrane. Uh, and it can actually produce things that aren't found in meteorites. Um, not because the meteorites didn't once have them, but because they don't stick around very long. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's nice to have a constant source like the atmosphere where it can produce them so that when they don't stick around, you can keep producing them more and more. Okay. Uh, so so the, the kind of key energy source is ultraviolet light, and that is, is kind of necessary to break apart methane and nitrogen because they're super stable molecules otherwise. Mm -hmm. So once you get that, lightning also is another source of energy which can break these things apart. And uh, in Titan's atmosphere, galactic cosmic rays are another source of energy which can break these things apart. Okay. You get this, uh, because it's a moon around Saturn, Saturn has this magnetic field, and the magnetic field lines come out of the north pole of, of Saturn and come around to the south pole. So any galactic cosmic rays which get caught in those field lines begin to, to swirl around those field lines and basically they just start to, to bombard Titan, which is sitting right right in those field lines. Okay, so we kind of missed out on that because we have a, a nice magnetic field kind exactly, of protecting yeah. us. And we even would have had it back then. It, yeah. Yes. So we've always yeah. kind of been protected by yeah. The, from so, these. so we're actually yeah we're quite protected by galactic cosmic rays. Um, if we were a moon around Jupiter or Saturn, then it's you know you get bombarded a little bit more. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you can kind of think of life as having maybe a couple important ingredients, and we definitely know asteroids could deliver some fraction of them. Mm -hmm. um, Unlikely all of them, but possible. Yeah. And now the atmosphere is looking like a, a promising source for one of these, or a, a big portion of these, these things. Like, yeah. So that's I guess that's the still to be determined part is that we do know that hydrogen cyanide was formed in the early Earth from these reactions, but the how much is kind of the key part of my PhD thesis. Uh, right now, I can tell you that. Um, you would have gotten, I, well, I can't tell you what concentrations you would have gotten yet because I have yet to calculate it. <laughs> but uh, the goal is once we're done with this Titan validation, which uh, will be shortly, we can move on to the uh, model of the early Earth and we can figure out uh, how much hydrogen cyanide was in the atmosphere uh, and then how much uh, dissolved into rain droplets as they were raining down. Uh, raining down from the troposphere into uh, water sources, uh, and then finally, what were the concentrations uh, that that these ponds that were on the surface, uh, what concentrations did they reach, and were they similar uh, to what the concentrations were from the meteorite sources? So it's really to compare these two as as plausible sources, um, and I I'm not sure if if this 
atmospheric source is really going to be enough. It, it's hard to say right now, mm -hmm. um, but as it stands right now, it's uh, it looks like it's going to be a, a pretty diffuse source. Okay. Um, once you create this stuff, though, does it go anywhere necessarily? Like, does it break down into other things? Like, Hydrogen cyanide. Yeah. Yeah. Is it a transient thing? Yeah. Okay. So it's uh, it reacts with itself, uh, for instance, to make adenine, which is one of the four nucleobases in RNA. Um, it reacts with uh, with formaldehyde to make um, uh, two of the other four nucleobases, uh, cytosine and, and uracil, um, and it reacts just with water to make guanine. So there's your four nucleobases, your four building blocks of RNA, um, and then it reacts with, uh, with water and, uh, and ammonia to make amino acids, and, and some, uh, some aldehyde, so formaldehyde uh, would, have, would, would react to make uh, alanine, which is one of the most common most common amino acids. Okay, but is there like any process that kind of blows it up before it has a chance to make anything useful? Is oh, like a like a like a sink for HCN, you mean, or like a like something destroys it? Yeah. Is there is there any reason to believe that even if it was produced fairly slowly in the atmosphere, mm -hmm. it couldn't eventually build up to a critical mass mm -hmm. that gets deposited, like? Uh, uh, so there, there would be an equilibrium that'd be reached. You would get, okay. uh, you would get your, you'd be producing, but you'd also be destroying. And then whatever your steady state solution, whatever right, you okay. reach everywhere, where it doesn't change after many years, is kind of where you'll end up. Okay. Uh, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, you can make your models simpler or more complex. There's things like like rain out, which we still have to do, where you have to actually dissolve everything in the atmosphere in these rain droplets and then let let them rain out of the atmosphere um, and then become these dissolved in these ponds. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another sink for HCN. And uh, yeah, this is this is the fun of theoretical <laughs> modeling actually. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So you do a lot of theory and you're going to the lab tomorrow. Uh -huh. So what do you do in the lab? So this is this is kind of new for me. I'm not a, an experimentalist uh, yet. I mean, <laughs> who knows? But uh, we uh, we want to we want to. I mean, any any good piece of science has both theory and experiment. You know, you need you can't you can't really prove anything without experiment. So uh, or observation, I suppose. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, we we develop a lot of model a lot of models, but. If we want to get closer to understanding how life emerged on Earth, we also need to go to the lab and and uh, validate these models. So what we're doing right now is we are asking the question: uh, after uh, you are in a pond and you have the building blocks of RNA, nucleotides, and you have the building blocks of cell membranes, fatty acids and you expose these to wet and dry cycles, how, how do these things, how do these uh, RNA molecules grow as a, as a, depending on how many wet and dry cycles you have? And how big do your membranes get depending on how many cycles you have? So as a function of the number of cycles you have. So we're trying to kind of figure out experimentally if we can determine what's called a polymerization rate, 
So how fast do you uh, actually how 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 are you building up your RNA molecules, and then also um, growth rate for your cell membranes? So we're we're really we're trying to get some data for this because mm -hmm. then we can also put that into another theoretical model um, and determine you know what favorable environments are for the origin of life. You know, do they, do you need wet dry cycles to be daily? Do you need them to be hourly? Can, is it okay if they're seasonally, yearly? Uh, is that not okay? You know, how, how fast do you need to have these cycles going and, and not going so you can actually grow up a really re uh, decent sized RNA molecule? Because there is a minimum length for an RNA molecule to actually have some kind of function. Right, and okay. it's probably at least 50, 50 chain links long, fifty monomers long. Um, so, so we need to, yeah. So we're just trying to figure out how you can grow these things, really. Cool. Yeah. So you just put a bunch of stuff in. Yeah. Turn it on. Yeah. Turn the oven on. Yeah. It's funny we uh, <laughs> we did it. We did an experiment over the weekend actually to kind of prepare for this uh, that uses Kool Aid. <laughs> Which uh, is is not involved in the origin of life. Probably not. If you didn't know, <laughs> not delivered via some celestial body. Yeah. No, okay. Cool. Great Kool Aid. That's how it all began. But uh, we wanted to know. It was just kind of to understand. You know, is there any location within the planet simulator this? this kind of piece of machinery which is capable of creating wet and dry cycles in an isolated environment? Is there any portion of it which is not getting wet? was kind of the basic question. So, okay. so we put uh, Kool-Aid crystals on 56 silicon wafers with inside this thing and exposed it to uh, several wet and dry cycles and they all got wet. <laughs> yeah, you'd really hope that it would be pretty uniform in terms yeah. of wetting. We were hoping, but, uh, but we just we wanted to run this first just to be certain because uh, I, had, I had some concerns from past experiments Things that didn't look like they were, they got wet at all, right? And I just wanted to be to be certain. Yeah, that would drive you insane if you spent like a couple months doing experiments, only to find out that where you place it in the chamber, yeah, exactly. Would affect things. Uh -huh. Yeah, because it's a big plate too. I mean, you can fit fifty six of these things on there, so you, yeah. you wonder if location matters. Well, well, good idea to to test that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, that sounds really exciting. Um, if listeners want to get more information, where should I send them? Origins of Life Institute, do you have a website? Yeah, okay. uh, so the Origins Institute has a website, cool. and that'll give you all the information you need to know about speakers that we have come coming to McMaster, public speakers that we have coming. We just had uh, someone speak about artificial life, this idea that you may be able to mimic something that is living using just software. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, before that, we had uh, we had a speaker that came and spoke about Titan. Um, we've had a lot of good good speakers recently. And uh, um, and if anybody, are you available on some sort of form of social media if people want to? Oh yeah, you? I uh, I have a Twitter account. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm a big tweeter. I I very much enjoy um, sharing bits of science or bits of life or whatever. On Twitter, uh, my handle's at astrobio underscore Ben. And yeah, if you follow me, I'll follow you back. I really like to follow people who are interested in science. Yeah, academic Twitter is really cool. It's I didn't so realize great, right? how yeah. like, engaging it can be. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that, that that's a good opportunity. We should all do that. I think so. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on. No problem, um, This was really fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Welcome to another episode of Get Lit. Today on the show, we speak with author Jessica Westhead. 